Rudolph Valentino once said, The part I like best was my role in Blood and Sand. If I had died, I would have liked to be remembered as an actor by that role. I think it my best. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Not So Bloody Arena of the Golden Silent Films podcast in an episode chock full and arguably overfilled with info and backstory behind 1922's Blood and Sand starring Rudolph Valentino. And that made us realize it has been an insanely long time since we discussed the ultimate Latin lover himself, Rudolph Valentino. So in deciding to talk about Valentino, we decided to push things one step further. This is the first episode of our very first ever a very Valentino Valentines, where we will be taking a look at one of Valentino's most prestigious bull-related projects. And pay no attention uh, to the uh, release date, it's totally a February episode. Trust us, totally February. Before we struggle into our tightest pair of matador pants, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As usual, please join Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little podcast. And for all of you rad folks on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence One, or just search for Golden Silence Cast, and you will find us. And these sites and screen names will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. And we would be more than happy to have you on board. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes picks and info, upcoming episode information and other fun and cool related silent movie stuff. And don't forget the great photos of our official show cats. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, do leave a review, a rating, or if you're feeling particularly frisky, how about you do both? All of these ratings and reviews really help a ton. The show has been olaying towards the 6,000 listen mark, and we hope to keep that moving up and up. Live your best review leaving life and help our fun little show grow. Whether getting us more exposure in the arena of podcasts or letting us know what we can do better, we appreciate the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be spotty at times, if you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode, and the moment we release new content, it will be downloaded right to your brain via your listening device of choice. And we don't want you to miss a second of any of the cool stuff we have in store for you. As we record this episode, it is a dark, dreary, raining gray afternoon here in our world headquarters of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If we do our job right, though, we will transport you all to the sun-drenched streets of Seville and Madrid. Now, this film is our second foray into the bullfighting arenas of Spain. If you turn back to Season 2, Episode 19, you'll hear our discussion into the 2012 silent film, Blanca Nieves. That was an elegant and poignant retelling of the Snow White fairy tale set against the backdrop of the 20th Spanish bullfighting world. This is a fantastic movie that pulled on all the heartstrings. If you haven't listened yet, we highly encourage you to do so. It was an incredibly fun one to make, complete with an amazing and surprising bullfighting-related tie to our home base of Pittsburgh. So, as we pass the blatant shilling, it is time to move on from older episodes and focus on the world of the Matador in the real 1920s. But not as much the real of Spain, but we shall get into that later. 
If you have not watched Blood and Sand yet, I would not even be mad if you paused the show right now and sought out a way to watch it. Obviously, YouTube is an available option like many of the movies we talk about here. But for our purposes, we wanted the best of the best, top of the line, cream of the crop version. And when it comes to finding the best versions of a movie, it's been well established on this program that Kino Classics is where you go. And if you don't believe me, let's take a look. This Kino Classics Blu-ray version of Blood and Sand was mastered in 4K from 35mm film elements, preserved by the Cinematique Francaise and Paul Killiam, with additional material provided by iFilm Museum. The film has been color-tinted according to instructions in the 1922 continuity script. Pretty dope, right? And if that was where the fanciness ended, it would be a great package. But it doesn't stop there. Not even close. Kino makes killer special features for their releases, and this one was no different. First, you get a fantastic audio commentary by film historian Anthony Slide. I've heard a few of his commentary tracks before, and every one is a fun adventure through the film. He is engaging, funny, and tells great stories in and around the film in question. And this one was no different. You also get a booklet essay by Donna Hill, author of Rudolph Valentino, The Silent Idol. Also, you get the theatrical trailer and fascinating footage of Valentino's funeral procession. In addition to all that, there is a parody film starring Will Rogers and an audio recording of the film's love theme performed by Susan Rogers. All of that stuff is fantastic, but my favorite bit by far is a filmed introduction by one of my favorite people in the cinematic world, Orson Welles. This was, I believe, for a PBS show in the 70s about silent films, uh, obviously entitled The Silent Years. And in this particular episode, Wells talks about all things blood and sand. He, he goes into great depth and has some super interesting personal stories related to the world of the Toreador and even the book itself. Such great stuff, and I could listen to that man talk forever. He is gravitas personified, and I cannot get enough. This third season of the Golden Silent Films podcast is about getting out of our comfort zone and trying new things. As we start off this biography segment, we are going to try something new and hopefully exciting. We have already done two Valentino-based episodes all the way back early in season one. One was an in-depth biography, while the other focused on the 1925 film, The Cobra. We felt it was time to queue up another serving of Valentino, but it had to be different, but still equally informative. So we decided to look at Rudolph Valentino where he was before, during, and after the filming of Blood and Sand. So basically, we're talking about his life through the lens of 1922. A more time-focused look into an incredibly interesting formative, and you could say scandalous year in the legendary life of the Latin lover. As we delve into this incredible 365-day span, I wanted to shout out two great books, amongst other sources, that really did great for putting this year in perspective. The first book was Valentino, an Intimate and Shocking Exposé, by Brad Steiger and Cha Mank. Whilst not as shocking as the title suggests, it was still pretty good stuff. Also, of great assistance to this episode was Dark Lover, The Life and Death of Rudolph Valentino by Emily W. Later. This is a huge book with so much great information for any fan of silent film or just Rudolph Valentino in general. Let's get the ball rolling by setting the scene leading up to 22. A quick, a quick trip to 1921 and earlier 
will set us on a journey that will set the stage quite nicely for what is to come in a busy 1922 for old Rudy. Rudolph Valentino was born on May 6, 1895 in Castellaneta, Italy. After a quick dip and degree in agriculture in Italy, he headed to Paris in 1912. That song and dance only lasted a bit before returning to his home country before setting his sights on the United States. Valentino would land stateside on December 23, 1913. The early days of Valentino in New York City were less than stellar. After some odd jobs to make ends meet, he took gigs as a taxi dancer, spending nights on the dance floor with wealthy, generous ladies around town. He even had bit parts in films starting in 1914. By 1917, the young Italian was finally making the full-time move towards showbiz with the traveling operetta company, which he would build on by moving into the motion pictures a little bit later. A series of small parts carried Valentino to a monster 1921 when he had his breakout role in The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and a starring role that won the hearts of women everywhere where he played Sheikh Ahmed Ben Hassan in the mega-hit The Sheik. On the personal side of the ledger, Valentino entered into an ill-advised marriage to lesbian actress Jean Acker. On November 6, 1919, they married, and on their wedding night, according to reports, he was locked out. She seemed to be heartbroken, claiming she had made a mistake. The couple remained legally wed until 1921, when Acker sued Valentino for divorce, citing desertion. The divorce was granted with Acker receiving alimony. Later, she and Valentino eventually renewed their friendship and remained friends until his death. But this short-lived marriage would have massive legal implications well into 1922 and after. So, we're still in 1921, right? And this is when Valentino met set and costume designer Natasha Rambova on the set of Uncharted Seas. The two would work together again cinematically and romantically on the film Camille. Picture Play magazine from August 1922 gives us the scoopski on this burgeoning romance. Agnes Smith brings us an, entitled, an article entitled Not Quite a Hero, focusing on the life and image of Rudolph Valentino, with some cool interview and day-in-the-life type stuff thrown in. Agnes Smith writes, It was during this production of Camille that Natasha Rambova met Valentino. Valentino decided that she was the one girl in the world for him. At a crucial moment in his career, she kept his head from being turned. She guided him from, by her good sense and good judgment. As we now know, looking back, that judgment and good sense wasn't necessarily working to the benefit of the Latin lover, but that is a story for another time. All of that is the short and abridged lead-in to where we are now, Rudolph Valentino's wild ride through 1922. Valentino, at this point, was a firmly entrenched and important member of Famous Players Lasky. Valentino opened the year strong, starring in Moran of the Lady Letty, which was released on February 12, 1922. A few months later... May 7, to be exact, would see the Latin lover star alongside Gloria Swanson in Beyond the Rocks. In a review of Beyond the Rocks, the May 12, 1922 edition of Variety would say, Beyond the Rocks has been built purely as a program feature. Its story should attract business. The cast has been well selected with Miss Swanson and Valentino nicely suited. The picture may prove a business getter. It has all the requisites for the female picture fan. The hits would keep coming in 1922 as Valentino began work on this episode's focus, Blood and Sand, where he played the lead and co-starred with Lila Lee and Nita Naldi. This feature would see Valentino push the limits of his star power. He made requests, demands, and suggestions which were all mostly denied by the studio. 
It started with his choice of director being turned down. Donna Hill, whom we mentioned earlier, writes, Valentino desired a real experience by filming in Spain. This was, of course, something Paramount would not do. The film did not have the budget for such an outlay. Stock footage from Madrid was used. The location shooting for Seville took place at one of, Paramount, at one of the Paramount Ranch properties. There would be a few concessions to Valentino, to an extent at least. Later, Emily later explains, To keep costs down, the studio decided to buy some of the props and costumes in Spain, but confined production to backlots in the Los Angeles area, relying on reflectors to simulate the blazing Spanish sun. This is a point where the recurring theme of an allegedly disruptive Natasha Rambova comes to the forefront. She could be very demanding and soon developed a reputation amongst the Hollywood community, a reputation that often caused Rudy to be caught in the middle. Natasha had already begun to run Rudy's life, Valentino co-star Nita Naldi remembered in the book Valentino, an intimate and shocking expose by Brad Steiger and Chaw Mank. She was hated by everyone on set, Naldi said, from grip to cameraman. There wasn't anything she didn't have an opinion on when it came to movie making, and she never hesitated in making her opinions known. We became friends, but I never liked the way she always had to be boss, and I never liked what she did to Rudy. After finishing the film, Valentino married Rambova, which led to an embarrassing arrest and a bigamy trial. All this because he had only been divorced from his first wife, Jean Acker, for less than a full year, as required by California law at the time. At that time, a divorced couple was required by law to wait one year before marrying again. The trial was a sensation, and the pair was forced to have their marriage annulled and be separated for a year. Although his divorce from Jean Acker was finally granted in 1922, California law stated that divorce, divorcees had to wait a year to remarry. Always impulsive, Valentino threw caution to the wind and married Rambova only two months later. Los Angeles law enforcement charged him with bigamy, wrote Hadley Hall Mears for a Vanity Fair article entitled Unlucky Star, The Brief Bombastic Life of Rudolph Valentino. Those at the time illicit nuptials between Valentino and Rambova went down on May 13, 1922 in Mexicali, Mexico, which oddly enough is pretty close to my birth city, which is pretty gosh darn cool. But hold on, it got cooler and closer for me. I had heard about the Mexicali stuff before, but as I learned more, I was amazed to find out that the Valentino wedding party started their journey across the border in the early hours of Saturday, May 13th, from the town of El Centro, California. That little town nestled in the heart of the Imperial Valley is my actual hometown. It's pretty amazing to see my little patch of desert as the starting point of this historic and scandalous moment for such a major Hollywood star. In that interview with Agnes Smith, Valentino describes those nuptials. It will be the best thing in the world for me, he said. I shall have a clever wife to advise and encourage me. I know that I shall be happy. We have the same friends, the same tastes, the same ideals. Does an actor fall in favor with the public when he marries? A thousand times no. That is an old and foolish idea. The actor is judged by his work. I am ambitious enough to want to be a good enough actor to be judged impersonally. An actor who is unmarried is the target of many silly rumors. I think I am fortunate to find an intelligent and beautiful woman. Agnes Smith gives us also a, a look at the aftermath of this marriage. 
She writes, Undoubtedly, had they been better advised, the marriage would have been postponed since Valentino must, on account of his contracts, remain in Los Angeles most of the time at present. That, unfortunately being the case, in order to comply with the strict letter of California laws, his wife left for the East immediately upon this unpleasant discovery, where it is understood she will remain until the California laws will regard them as legally married. Blood and Sand would release on August 5th, 1922. While everyone from the studio to the movie-going public was incredibly happy with Blood and Sand, Valentino wasn't so much. His next film was The Young Raja, which was released on November 12, 1922. The June Mathis penned film underperformed at the box office while Valentino's acting suffered from his legally forced separation from Rambova. In an effort to support his Raja film, Valentino even took to a, I guess, quote-unquote, impromptu personal appearance at a screening of The Young Raja at the Rivoli Theater, we mentioned earlier. Variety, ever the optimistic industry paper, covered this event in its November 10, 1922 edition. The article reads, It was an impromptu affair, the star of the picture having to come to the theater to see himself on the screen. The audience, recognizing him, demanded his appearance on the stage through applause, and he complied. The paper continues, At famous players, this expression of goodwill on the part of that star was taken to indicate that the differences between him and the company would be straightened out in the near future. Ah, there's that optimism. But, unfortunately, things are only going to get worse and soon end up in the judicial system. First, let's take a look at how the young Raja did at the box office and with crowds. According to the November 1922 edition of Variety, the one biggest surprise of the week was occasioned by the flop of the latest Rudolph Valentino picture, The Young Raja, did at the Rivoli, where the picture got just under $32,000 on the week. This, after starting off on Sunday of the week by breaking the house record created by Blood and Sand, then falling off a little on Monday, picking up again on Tuesday through the holiday prices, and finally flopping steadily from that point on. Donna Hill adds, Reviving his complaint that blood and, blood and sand was shot on the cheap rather than in the color of Spain, compounded with the failure of the young Raja, Valentino took his new contract and threw it back at the company and went on strike. Missing Rambova, Valentino returned to New York after the release of the young Raja. They were spotted and followed by reporters constantly. During this time, Valentino began to contemplate not returning to famous players, although Jesse Lasky was already prepping his next picture, The Spanish Cavalier. After speaking with Rambova and his lawyer Arthur Butler Graham, Valentino had had enough and declared a one-man strike against famous players Lasky. The disappointing release of The Young Raja would mark the end of Valentino's cinematic output for his tumultuous 1922. Much like his off-screen life, his 1922 filmography would ultimately end up a bit all over the place, as far as quality and box office receipts were concerned. Blood and Sand would definitely be the high point, finishing second only to Robin Hood in the year's box office numbers. The madcap year would fizzle out only for Valentino to trade on-screen drama for courtroom drama. At the time of his lawsuit against the studio, Valentino was hell-bent on securing an increase in his pay. He wanted to be the financial equal to the biggest names in the game. It eventually hit an impasse, and by September of 1922, he was refusing paychecks from famous players, until the dispute was resolved, although he still owed them money. 
money he had spent to pay off Gene Acker. This did not sit well with famous players who, in turn, filed suit against him. So we turn back to Steiger and Mank. They explain, If Valentino had hoped that famous players would yield to his demands, he had greatly underestimated the brick wall attitude of its bosses. On September 14, famous players obtained an injunction restraining Valentino from entering into any contract with any other producing company. In the resultant lawsuit, Valentino's attorney, Arthur Butler Graham, emphasized the actor's claim that famous players had not treated him well, had not provided him with a new dressing room, and had placed him under a handicap by denying him the proper facilities for the fruition of his art. In a report from the February 1923 edition of Picture Play magazine, we look back on this battle of wills pitting Valentino versus his studio overlords. The article explains, A few months ago, dissatisfied with his working conditions, he left the Lasky studio, came east, and tried to get the courts to release him from his contract, which has some two years yet to run. Famous players contested his case, and up to the present the courts have sustained them. But Rudolph has so far continued in his refusal to return to the Paramount fold and apparently prefers to hold out even though it prevents him from making any pictures for the entire duration of the contract. Meanwhile, famous players also appear to be standing pat and have imported a French actor, Charles de Rocher, who played in their Spanish Jade to take the role in their forthcoming production, A Spanish Cavalier, in which Valentino was to have been starred. The article continues, It is rumored that powerful interests are backing his fight, and that attempts are being made to purchase Valentino's release from famous players Lasky. Goldwyn, according to a report, wants, to, wants him to play the leading role in their forthcoming production of Ben-Hur. As we now know, that role in Ben-Hur, or any other movie for that matter, wasn't in the cards for the Latin lover. Valentino did not and would not back down, and famous players realized how much they stood to lose. In trouble after shelving Roscoe Arbuckle Pictures post-scandal, the studio tried to settle by upping his salary from $1,250 a week to $7,000 a week. Industry paper Variety would erroneously announce the salary increase as a new contract before news of the lawsuit was released, and Valentino angrily rejected the offer. Valentino was left with two choices. Either go back to work for famous players or be prepared to wait out the two-year period of the injunction, writes Steiger and Mank. While he was being stubbornly encouraged to defy the studio by Natasha Rambova, Valentino faced further financial anguish when his attorney brought suit against him for $48,000 for services and money advanced during the unsuccessful court battles. Other studios were definitely interested in acquiring his services. From an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet to June Mathis and her Ben-Hur project at Goldwyn, Valentino was a wanted man. However, Famous Players exercised its option to extend his contract, preventing him from taking roles and jobs other, with other studios. By this point, Valentino was struggling financially as a result of his various legal fights. In fact, he was about $80,000 in debt at this point. He filed an appeal to gain his cinematic independence back, a portion of which was granted. Although he was still not allowed to work as an actor, he could accept other types of employment. On December 8th, the, Apple, uh, the appellate division of the New York affirmed the decision against him. Valentino was again told that he must complete his contract with famous players Lasky or not appear publicly until February 1st, 1924, 
wrote the duo of Steiger and Mank. In late 1922, Valentino met George Ullman, who soon became his business manager. Ullman had previously worked with Mineralava Beauty Clay Company and convinced them that Valentino would be perfect as a spokesman. His legions of female fans were the perfect demographic for the Mineralava product line. Valentino was impressed with the shrewdness of the man, and of course he was flattered by Ullman's insistence that women would turn out in droves to get a glimpse of the chic, wrote Steiger and Mank. Although Rudy had begun to profess his weariness of the whole desert lover business, the sight of shrieking female fans would indeed be reassuring after the series of courtroom defeats, the duo wrote. The tour would start in January of 1923 and was a tremendous success. Seeing Valentino and Rambova performing in 88 cities across the United States and Canada over the course of 17 weeks. In addition to the tour, Valentino would also be a spokesman for Mineral Lava and all their various beauty products. What a whirlwind of a tour. If you can find anybody with more highs and lows in a calendar year, color us impressed. As we take a deep breath and slow down for a moment, let's put Valentino's incredibly busy 1922 behind us and look at another star of blood and sand. As we did with the Valentino segment, there was a great book out there that really helped us dive into the life of Valentino's Blood and Sand co-star, Lila Lee. Oddly enough though, it wasn't a book about Lila Lee that gave us such great information. The book is called Ponies and Rainbows, The Life of James Kirkwood by Sean Egan. This book is super packed with great research and information ostensibly about the life of Lila Lee's son, James Kirkwood. But in telling his story, there is some of the best Lila Lee research I've been able to come across. And her son led an incredibly fascinating life, which I knew almost nothing about before reading this book. So I cannot recommend it enough. So that is to say that we are transitioning from our film's Juanito to its Carmencita, and that of course being Lila Lee. The future actress would be born on July 25th, 1905 in Union Hill, New Jersey. But her birth name would uh, be a bit of a mouthful more than Lila Lee. She was born Augusta Wilhelmina Frederica Appel. She was born of German immigrant parents and had an older sister, Pauline, also born in Germany. As a little preview of the life of Lila Lee, it was filled with lots of potential, filled with manipulation, and folks, mostly men, taking advantage of her. And her choices in life certainly wouldn't help the situation. Lee got started in show business at a young age. She was enrolled in a children's theater group by her parents run by a fellow named Gus Edwards, looking for a creative outlet for their daughter's energy. Whilst this would give Lila a great start towards an entertainment career, it would also usher in some of the negativity that would follow her throughout her life. On the positive side of things, shortly after entering her teens, Charlie Chaplin caught one of her performances at the Orpheum Theater. He would tell the 13-year-old that she had a future in pictures. He seemed to know what he was talking about when she would eventually pass a screen test that resulted in Jesse Lasky signing her to a contract with famous players Lasky. Not only did Lee attend no classes in a time before mandatory schooling, but she later claimed her childhood was sullied by Edwards kissing and groping her when she was 15. She also said that of her $1,000 a week salary, an incredible amount for the time, Edwards kept the lion's share and sent her family expenses. A lawsuit ultimately freed her from Edwards' clutches, writes Sean Egan. As she grew up, so did her venues of performance. 
Still incredibly young, Lila Lee would spend some time on the vaudeville circuit before securing her first motion picture contract in 1918 by famous player Lasky. The 13-year-old's first feature film came in 1918's The Cruise of Make-Believe. This performance was a breakout moment for the youngster. Not long after, at the age of 16, Lila began dating Charlie Chaplin, nearly 15 years her senior. Later in life, she would say he was not the lecher of legend, but in fact a perfect gentleman, Egan explained. In an article from the August 1922 issue of Picture Play magazine, we go a bit deeper into this relationship. The article is pretty self-explanatory in its title, Chaplin and the Ladies, and was written by Edwin Schallert. He writes, Lila Lee, with whom his, Chaplin's, destiny is now apparently linked, is much more cautious. She has little to say, and what she says is to the effect that, oh, Charlie is lots of fun. The meaning she would convey, of course, is that her appearing with him in public is not to be taken seriously. Schallert continues, Miss Lee is very young. In fact, she is still in her teens. Chaplin admits to 32. They are seen constantly together, at the opera, at concerts, at the theater, as well as the Coconut Grove. Their romance has come to be accepted, although comparatively little has been said about it because of Lila's reticence. The crowds loved her, and that connection with the audience led her to appear in nearly 30 films between 1918 and 1922. And it was 1922 where she would appear opposite Rudolph Valentino and Nita Naldi in Blood and Sand. To say 1922 was a good year for Lila Lee is a bit of an understatement. In addition to snagging such big-time roles, she was amongst the winners of the first class of the Wampus Baby Stars in 1922. As a little refresher, the Wampus Baby Stars was part of a promotional campaign sponsored by the United States Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers, which honored 13 or so young actresses each year whom they believed to be on the threshold of movie stardom. The campaign ran from 22 to 34, with the exception of 1930 and 1933. This was a big honor, especially considering the name she was honored with. In addition to Lee, awards went out to Bessie Love, Colleen Moore, Mary Philbin, and Pittsburgher Lois Wilson. Not too shabby a group to be included with, right? On the personal side of things, Lila Lee would meet her first husband, James Kirkwood Sr., on the set of the 1922 flick, Ebb Tide. They would marry on June 25, 1923, Lee's 18th birthday. This union would continue the theme of manipulation and abuse in Lee's life. Sean Egan explains, She claimed that Kirkwood Sr. took her virginity before they were married and that she fell pregnant as a result of this first ever coupling. Kirkwood Sr. arranged an abortion, then illegal. Their relationship continued afterwards, but Lee's autobiography also claimed that the reason it did was that Kirkwood Sr. threatened to tell her mother of their premarital carnal relations, then culturally shameful particularly for women if it didn't. The implication of this passage is that this is why they got married. A baby boy, first erroneously reported in the papers as a girl, was born on August 22, 1924 at Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. This baby boy was James Kirkwood Jr., or Jimmy. As the 20s came to a close and sound grew in popularity, Lee was able to secure her spot on screen in a post-silent world. She was able to parlay her name and talent into working with the major studios and appeared most notably in 1930's The Unholy Three, opposite Lon Chaney Sr. in his only talkie. Kirkwood Sr. divorced Lila Lee in 1930 on the grounds of abandonment. 
The horrible run continued as she was at the height of her popularity and during that big role in The Unholy Three. Sean Egan explains that during filming, Lee hemorrhaged. He continues, Lee blamed the stress of supporting her ex-husband and the son she rarely saw as the ultimate reason for her contracting what was then called galloping tuberculosis. Lee relocated to Flynn Sanitarium in Prescott, Arizona, where the modus operandi was to not allow the patients to move. During a bedridden year, Lee's stocks and shares were wiped out by the Great Crash. She wasn't able to resume acting for a further six months after leaving the sanitarium. Neither Lee's health nor her career would ever truly recover. When the TB wasn't reoccurring, she suffered a number of other ailments, progressively so as she got older. This had an inevitable detrimental effect on the role she was offered and able to accept. Lee was married and divorced three times. Her first husband, like we mentioned earlier, was actor James Kirkwood Sr. Lee and Kirkwood's son Jimmy Kirkwood became a, a highly regarded playwright and screenwriter whose works include A Chorus Line and P.S. Your Cat is Dead. Kirkwood Jr. would be raised off and on by Lee's family in Illyria, Ohio. Actresses and actors can only do so much without words to act on, and Blood and Sand had one of the very best. That would be June Mathis. Mathis was born June Beulah Hughes in 1887 in Leadville, Colorado. Her father died at a young age and her mother married William Mathis. She grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which she would proudly consider her hometown for the rest of her life. At the age of 13, she pursued a career in vaudeville doing imitations and dances. She had success in San Francisco and eventually played the Orpheum. Her stage career grew over the next few years, bringing her good reviews and a lot of acclaim. In 1908, she played with Julian Elting in Brewster's Millions, and in 1912 joined him in The Fascinating Widow, which was a major, major success. After that short stint in front of the cameras in the early 1910s, Mathis decided her powers would be better served behind the camera. After a couple years learning her craft, she started her writing career submitting scripts for contests. Though she didn't win, she succeeded in making a name for herself. Her first produced script was for a 1915 film called The House of Tears. Mathis signed with Metro Pictures where she quickly rose through the ranks. By 1918, she was writing for the studio's biggest stars, such as Francis X. Bushman, Viola Dana, Mae Murray, and Alan Nazimova. Mathis became the head of the scenario department, making her the first female film executive ever. More than simply a writer or editor, she functioned as an executive for Metro and later Goldwyn, who had a say in deciding which pictures would be made and exercised authority over every phase of production, writes Emily Leiter. Her work on 1921's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was one of the first steps on her path to becoming a Hollywood powerhouse. With this film, she was involved in almost every aspect of the production. She adapted the work from Vicente Blasco Ibanez, she chose Rex Ingram to direct, and picked a relative unknown named Rudolph Valentino for a pivotal role. The crazy success of this picture really launched Mathis, Ingram, and Valentino into stardom, and it was a top-grossing film of 1921. She held exalted ideals for motion pictures, valuing the medium as an art form rather than a purely commercial enterprise whose goals were profit and entertainment. These were views Valentino would espouse too during his later battle with famous players Lasky over artistic control of his pictures, writes Emily Later. Mathis moved with Valentino to famous players where she wrote 1922's Blood and Sand and The Young Raja, 
and the Spanish Dancer in 1923. Blood and Sand continued Mathis's run of big hits as it became one of the top-grossing movies of 1922. After Valentino embarked on his one-man strike, Mathis signed with Goldwyn Pictures as an editorial director. She would lead production of Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ in 1925, handling many of the same duties she did in Four Horsemen. As we have mentioned on this show before, that production was a total disaster, which, oddly enough, ended with Blood and Sand director Fred Niblo taking over directorial duties. After a year at Goldwyn, Mathis left for First National. There, she would take the reins as an executive, this time writing comedies for Colleen Moore and Corrine Griffith. In addition to all of her accolades, she was also a founding member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She died unexpectedly in 1927 at the age of 40 from a heart ailment, just one year after her bestie, Rudolph Valentino. With all of Valentino's deaths in life, he had nowhere to be buried in death. Mathis stepped up and loaned her deceased friend the plot next to hers. With her death the next year, though, that neighboring situation became permanent. Having talked a bit about the folks who brought this flick to silver screen life, let's rewind a moment and look back at the journalist, politician, and novelist who first breathed life into the characters of Blood and Sand, literarily and surprisingly enough, cinematically, as you'll soon hear. That man is Vicente Blasco Ibanez. Blasco Ibanez was born on January 29, 1867, in Valencia, Spain. I couldn't find much about the author's youth, but he would eventually graduate college-slash-university studying law in 1888, though he never really went into practice. Like his idol, Miguel de Cervantes, his interests and pursuits would lead him down a journalistic and literary path. His first published work was 1892's La Rana Negra, or The Black Spider. That would be followed up with a handful of books written between 1895 and 1902. As his writing career progressed, so did the content of his text. He would switch out the slice-of-life stories and naturism for plots more concerned with melodrama and sensationalism. His first big hit of his writing resume came in the pages of his 1908 novel, Sangre y Arena, or Blood and Sand, as we know it in English. Blood and Sand follows the career of Juan Gallardo from his poor beginnings as a child in Seville to his rise as a matador in Madrid. Ibanez would direct a 65-minute film version of this in 1916. There were also three remakes, 1922, which we're about to talk about, 1941, and 1989. Blasco Ibanez would go to Argentina in 1909, where he gave conferences on historical events in Spanish literature. Tired and disgusted with government failures and inaction, he moved to Paris at the beginning of the First World War. His greatest personal success probably came from the novel Los Cuatro Jinetes del Apocalipsis, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1916, which tells the story of the French and German sons-in-law of an Argentinian landowner who find themselves fighting on opposite sides during the First World War. When it was filmed by Rex Ingram in 1921, that film became a hit, a huge monster hit that even, as we mentioned a minute ago, propelled Rudolph Valentino into stardom as well. Rex Ingram would also film an adaptation of a Blasco Ibanez story, Mare Nostrum, a spy story from a 1918 book that was filmed in 1926 as a vehicle for his wife Alice Terry at the MGM studio in Nice, France. 
two more Hollywood films would come from adaptations of Blasco Ibanez. They were the two they were two of the first films made by Greta Garbo following her arrival at MGM. Those two films were The Torrent, adapted from Entre Naranjos a uh, 1900 book, and The Temptress, derived and adapted from La Tierra de Todos, a book from 1922. His popularity was so high in the United States that in 1924 he was voted the second most popular author, only behind H.G. Wells. Even to this day, he is the most translated Spanish author of all time. He would die in 1928 in Menton, France, the day before his 61st birthday. Since we're on the topic of the book version of Blood and Sand, let's take a look at what reviewers at the time thought of this seminal book in the career of Vicente Blasco Ibanez. Now, I was not kidding earlier when I said we were going in-depth into all things Blood and Sand. And that is why this episode probably is going to roughly last forever. So our apologies now. But when we set out to do this episode, we really wanted to make the ultimate Blood and Sand podcast. And that is what we hope we are giving to all of you fine listeners out there. So the book and the movie share a lot of similarities. You have the career of Juan from his poor beginnings as a child in Seville to his meteoric rise as a celebrity matador in Madrid. We have him falling in love with uh, the seductress Donya Soul, his love of Carmen, it's all there. But since we're talking about the book now, let's look at a review of Blood and Sand coming from the pen of a person known only as FC. And this is from the June 1919 issue of The Atlantic. Now, from what I understand, this review uh, is covering the newly translated version, newly at the time, I guess which is why there is a 10-year or so difference from its original Spanish publication date to its English publication date. And just for, for giggles, uh, you could buy that 1919 edition of Blood and Sand for a cool $1.90 manufacturer-suggested retail price. FC writes, Written in 1908, this relentless picture of the Spanish bullring surpasses indefinite artistry the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, through which the author first arrested American attention. The latter is almost a treatise. The earlier book is almost an epic, but an epic transmogrified, celebrating the sinister glories of an unworthy national pastime, the sordid heroism of folly. The cloudy, ruminant quality of the Four Horsemen is here replaced by a sharp objectivity of treatment. The three or four great scenes of the bullfight, sun-filled and hot, and crowded with color as a soroya, are heightened and interpreted by innumerable, vivid minor sketches, some of them merely blocked in, others finished in brilliant detail. Juanillo, the ragamuffin haunting the slaughterhouse and playing torero with the oxen. El Nacional, the indifferently expert banderiero, sketched in a few strokes, yet how well we know him the fanatical revolutionary, the sober family man, full of passion and ignorance, hating the church and lauding the panacea, education. Donya Soul, an impressionist picture of a corrupt fine lady, beside whose cold viciousness the ugly sins of Juan fade into peccadilloes. The nights, a night scene by the roadside with the herd rushing past to the morrow's torture, the procession in Holy Week so gay and unconsciously blasphemous, all these and more vivify the crowning episodes. F.C. continues, 
In true epic fashion, the story opens with Juan at the zenith of his career. We assist at the Torero's toilet. We follow him through the gala streets of Madrid to his supreme triumph in the bullring. Reminiscent narrative takes us sketchily through childhood, youth, marriage to wealth, and the tottery heights of popular fame. Then begins the decline, culminating in the tragic sequence of bullfights in the last three chapters. The bewildered cowardice of the hero, the fickle brutality of the populace, the bloody details of the ring, nothing has spared us. And yet these lavish horrors are reported with the grim, unimpassioned distaste and Latin directness, which give almost the effect of restraint and understatement. So we're going to go from a written review and move over to our special blood and sand correspondent Orson Welles. You may have heard of him. This is from that bit earlier from the Blu-ray special features. Wells talks a bit about the film, a bit about the book, and a bit about his own surprising connections to bullfighting in this clip from the television program, The Silent Years. Wells explains his brief flirtation with bullfighting thusly. For a few gouty months, a million years ago, I squeezed myself into a suit of lights and passed myself off in a few provincial bullrings as a matador, or more accurately speaking, a noviero. This tattered remnant from my past is something I don't usually dredge up, not only because I wasn't very good at it, but because in the non-bullfighting countries of the world, I know how a dim a view most of you take of the tragic spectacle. The movie is based on the best book of the subject ever written by Blasco Ibanez. Ibanez, like most writers and intellectuals, particularly of his generation in Spain, was very much opposed to the corrida, which is the Spanish style of bullfighting, Wells continues. And Blood and Sand is very much an anti-bullfighting book. The case against the art has never been so dramatically put. With the literary pursuits of Blasco Ibanez behind us, let's look at his maiden cinematic voyage. This Primero cinematic version of Blood and Sand was co-directed by Blasco Ibanez and Max Andre and was released in 1916. It was produced by Spanish-French label Prometheus Films, named after the Editorial Prometeo, Blasco Ibanez's publishing house, which backed the cost of the cinematic endeavor. This would be the first time the novelist tried his skilled hands at film production. Now, the crazy popularity of the book in Spain exerted a significant influence on the Spanish cinema in the immediate aftermath of its release. Despite this two-tiered success, the literary and film, it wound up being the only time that Blasco Ibanez himself contributed a visual component to his literary works. According to Wikipedia, this version exists largely from a tape from the Czech Film Archive, a version with 800 meters of length less than the original film. This version was restored by the Valencia Film Archive with a changed ending where the parallels between bullfighting and bandits are reinforced. The copy held by Valencia Film Archive was given by Dolores Nibut Sanchez in 1993. It was a film roll in nitrate support found in a state of decay that produced irreversible damage to the image and contained about a sixth part of the full footage. From that footage, restored in 1913, 93 meters were saved. In 1996, following a projection by the Spanish Film Archive of a series of films archived at the Czech Film Archive, the Valencia Film Archive contacted, contacted this film archive and got on loan their copy so they could complete the nitrate footage as close as possible to the original length. 
So that is a long-winded, confusing, and overuse of the word film archive way of saying it's a miracle this film exists for us to watch today. Even without its full length available, what does exist is really great and gorgeous to see. If you want to check out this original adaptation of Blood and Sand, it is available on YouTube. I really loved this film. You can definitely see where the cuts and missing footage are, but it's really not at all distracting, especially having seen the 1922 Blood and Sand. You can pretty easily follow the big story points with fantastic visuals and sets. On that note, as we talked about earlier, one of the points of contention between Valentino and the studio execs was whether to film this film in Spain or not. After watching the 1916 version, I am firmly convinced that Valentino was totally in the right. Money issue or no, filming in Spain would have been amazing. The sets and look of this original version truly make it amazing. Every building and location filmed looked fantastic and like a piece of art that should be hanging on the wall. We have some shots from this flick on our social media sites, so feel free to take a look, see what cool shots and images they were capturing back in 1916. I really can't say enough great stuff about this movie, and it is definitely worth a watch for any blood and sand aficionado. Well, with the pre-show out of the way, it is time to finally get into the movie itself, to finally break down Blood and Sand 1922, Rudolph Valentino, Lila Lee, Nita Naldi. Let's talk about the movie and see how all these influences and everything coming into it led to this movie we have before us today. Jesse L. Lasky presents Rudolph Valentino in Vicente Blasco Ibanez's Blood and Sand. From the novel by Ibanez and the play by Tom Cushing, written for the screen by June Mathis, a Fred Niblo production directed by Fred Niblo and photographed by Alvin Wyckoff. The film opens by telling us, The wide world over, cruelty is disguised as sport to gratify man's lust for excitement. From the early ages, humanity has congregated to watch the combating forces of man and beast. To the Spaniard, the love of the bullfight is inborn, a heritage of barbarism. Its heroes embody the bravery of the knights of old, it continues. Which brings us to the crux of this tale. A tale of a Toreador, a son of the people who becomes its idol, and sunny Seville is his birthplace. To that end, the film's first visuals are of a town square in Seville. There is the general hustle and bustle of busy city life. Turning back to blood and sand correspondent Orson Welles, for him to explain, he says this, basically what we have here is a Hollywood fantasy, a picturesque romance, just the sort of attractive nonsense that you'd expect to find as a frame for Valentino. And in that context, he makes, as you'd expect, a perfect dream of a matador. No matador in real life, of course, was ever so beautiful. But isn't that just as it should be? In the suburb de la Feria, we are first introduced to Juan's mother. She is played here by Rose Rosanova. She is being razzed about her son being a ne'er-do-well with no future in bullfighting. He should be doing some legitimate business and get his head out of the clouds. Next, we are introduced to Antonio the Sadler, who took a deep interest in the widow's affairs, who is played by Leo White. He took this deep interest because he is married to her daughter and Juan's sister, Encarnacion, played by Rosita Marstini. Antonio thinks Juan is good for nothing. 
A short distance away in the Andalusian foothills, Juan is doing his best bullfighting up and down the dusty roads along with some other ragamuffins. We see a trio of these toradors in the ring, fighting for honor and tips. This is our first view of in-ring action of Rudolph Valentino as Juan Gallardo. From a, hill, from a hillside vantage point, however, we meet Plumitas, the wanted bandit taking in the action. The film tells us a bandit's profession is much like that of a Toreador's. Both risk life to gain a livelihood. And this bandito is played by Walter Long. According to film historian Anthony Slide, this was not the first time Walter Long and Rudolph Valentino were co-stars. They were in The Sheik and Moran of the Lady Letty together before this Spanish excursion. Whilst Juan and his two buddies battle, things take a tragic turn when his friend is gored. Blood all over the sand. Juan takes it upon himself to avenge his friend and take out this bull himself. If you look closely here, you'll see Valentino's safety is concern numero uno over a good shot. As Juan prepares to dispatch the poor bull, you can see it is safely tied up and no danger at all to the Latin lover. The killer bull himself is killed by the upstart matador and the crowd goes wild. With the fight done, Juan weeps and mourns as his friend dies in his arms. This early death in the provincial bullring was a good way to show the American theatergoer that these bullfights were serious business and not for the faint of heart. After that whole fiasco, it is five days before the widow Gallardo hears from her son. Antonio tries to com comfort his mother and sister by saying, There is no need to worry about Juan. A bad peseta always turns up. Juan finally returns home, plays with some cute goats for a bit before walking in the house, cigarette in mouth. Incidentally, it's tough to look cooler than Rudolph Valentino smoking a cigarette. Especially in these early bits, Valentino is so damn charming. And June Mathis is the one person who could see that coolness, charisma, and star potential. Rudolph Valentino was a diamond in the rough, and he recognized the impact June had on his career. He would say as much as an, he would say as much in an interview with Picture Play magazine. Valentino explained, June Mathis discovered me. She gave me a part when life was not so easy, and now she will write all of my pictures. She is capable, humorous, and general, generous woman. I am eternally grateful to her. No one realizes how much she had to do with the success of the Four Horsemen. She was on set every day. She suggested a hundred small touches, and now she will supervise blood and sand. I am immensely glad because it is the first picture in which I am to be starred, and I know that I can trust Miss, Ma Miss Mathis's advice and good judgment. Juan walks like the cock of the walk until his mom starts taking a swing at him with a broom. She is not happy about her son's disappearance. With his mom calmed down, he tells her of the tragedy at the bullfight. She worries that it might be him in that position someday. To try to soften her fears, he gives her the money he won. Someday I will build you a fine house and you shall have a grand carriage, he tells her. The news of Juanito's prowess quickly spreads through Seville, attracting the wealthy patrons of the national sport. This leads to Juan getting bigger and better gigs. He is moving on up, but his mother still fears for him. She can't find a way to approve of his dangerous profession. Antonio and Encarnacion, who, is holding, who are holding their two children, watch as Juan leaves for the big fight. 
Antonio can't miss a chance to take a shot at Juan. I am going to that bullfight to see them pelt that vagabond brother of yours with oranges, he tells He tells Encarnacion. She adds, hit him with one for me. The hours pass and we are back at Juan's mom's house. His mom's friends come rushing in. Blessed be the mother who bore so brave a son. Never has there been such bravery in the arena, they yell at her. He tore up that fight. The crowd was going crazy, so crazy, in fact, that he gets a huge procession ride back home. The streets are lined with people cheering him on. This newfound success seems to have changed his brother-in-law's tune as well. Make way for the greatest Toreador in all of Spain, and he is my brother-in-law, he tells the onlookers. So we don't get to see any of this big breakthrough bullfight on screen. Anthony Slide, though, explains that it was done not for budgetary reasons, as you may think, considering how tight with money the studio could be. Actually, it's more story-wise, because it works great for the audience to build up anticipation for when the viewer finally gets to see Valentino in the arena. Mamacita can't believe what she has seen outside her house. Also, outside in the procession, Juan locks eyes with a super cute girl in the mass of people. She throws a rose to him, which he catches. The widow Gallardo is so proud of her boy and wishes his father could have seen his bravery. Juan gives his mother a sweet kiss on the forehead. Again, he locks eyes with the girl from the crowd. His mother reminds her son who she is. Do you not remember little Carmen who went away to the convent? She came today after you had gone. Carmen, the playmate of his, of his childhood, is portrayed by Lila Lee. They talk a bit about their childhood as the two reconnect. She was at the now famous bullfight. Juan is super smitten. Though she may have left, their strong connection seemingly never stopped. So, as we're moving past the bullfight and the excitement in the crowds, the film takes a bit of an off-ramp. In the same neck of the woods of the town as Juan lived Don Joselito, a student of humanity, played by Charles Belcher. He is in his creepy study, at his creepy desk, writing creepy things. This philosopher surrounded himself with barbaric relics of torture, grim testimony of man's inhumanity to man, the film tells us. We see literal torture devices with some double exposure magic showing the poor souls locked in those instruments of pain. He searched deep into men's hearts, ever willing to excuse weakness, and in a master ledger recorded the lives of those who interested him. For this film's purposes, he is a bit of a narrator, philosophizing on all we see. To that end, we see him write, Juan Gallardo has reached his goal. Will success spoil him, or will his love for little Carmen overcome the plaudits of the populace and the cruelty of the national sport? That reminds me also, throughout this film, he will be the anti-bullfighting advocate. Going back to Juan's story thread, we learn his success has made him the idol of the Seville cafes. Now Juan is looking super dapper in the finest suits and hat and smokes Seville has to offer. He sits at a table with some of his compatriots. First is Don Jose, his manager, played by Fred Becker. Next is another bullfighter named El Nacional, played by George Field. In addition to a couple other dudes, there is Garibato, an old head matador played by Gilbert Clayton, and of course there was Antonio basking in the glory of his brother-in-law. Now that name El Nacional 
you remember it from the book version. It plays a bigger part in the book version, but apart from El Nacional, most of these characters we just met will do very little of consequence throughout the rest of the film. Now, while in this cafe slash bar, we get some of that magical dancing that made Valentino so famous in the first place. He is more than happy to share a dance with a lady. Instead of the tango that won hearts and four horsemen of the apocalypse, here he gets in a little flamenco action. When his dance partner tries to get a little too fresh, however, Juan throws her down. I hate all women, but one, he tells his posse before dipping out. Will he stay this focused on one woman as the film progresses? Well, we'll see, we'll see. Now after all that craziness, he sits under Carmen's window smoking. He has a man with a guitar playing for her as they talk at the window. He gives her a beautiful heart-shaped pendant. Her eyes light up as she holds it. She asks him if all the rumors she hears about him are true. He says he only does things to return the courtesy of friends. A Toreador cannot live like a monk. He swears to her that he loves no one but her. We fast forward through time before stopping at Gallardo's wedding, which was a gala event for which there was music and dancing long into the night. One of the guests at this marital shindig is the creepy town philosopher Don Jose Lito, who chats it up with the newlywed Carmen with his usual cryptic talk. Keep faith ever alive within your heart. It means much to guard his safety, he tells her. But he is not just dropping pearls of wisdom with Carmen. He also tells Juan, remember, the plaudits of the world are as fickle as a woman's whim. Most women in the Western world would give their eye teeth to be cast opposite Rudolph Valentino. But Lee preferred blondes to the smoldering Latino looks that made Van Valentino the preeminent male movie star of the era, writes Sean Egan. With the nuptials behind us, we return to the creepy den of Don Jose Lito, who is visited in secret by the bandit Plumitas. We learn Don Jose Lito's heart went out in sympathy to all fugitives. There, he tells Plumitas, there is a strange parallel between your life and Juan Gallardo's. The same end is inevitable. Plumitas reads a page from a tome of the philosopher that says, Happiness and prosperity built on cruelty and bloodshed cannot survive. I'm not going to lie. That's a bit foreboding, uh, I believe. Next, we are back in the arena, but this time Madrid instead of the Seville's we've been used to. Madrid is the mecca of the bullfighter. At this point in the story, two years of triumph had made Gallardo the idol of Spain. At a nice cafe in Madrid, Juan sits and smokes reading his newspaper. The now famous Toreador always stops there. He is superstitious and believes this cafe to be a house of good shadow. As he leaves the cafe, a beggar woman approaches him. She is the mother of a Toreador who was killed recently. He sees this as a bad omen and gives her money before running off in fear. As time for the show drew near, Gallardo usually held an impromptu reception for his admirers when he dressed. The bullfighter is behind a curtain as press dudes enter. We also meet Dr. Ruiz, the famous surgeon of the bullring, played by Sidney de Grey. While we're on the topic of Valentino character getting dressed, I would be remiss if I didn't mention what a big deal this was. According to Steiger and Mank, they write, Valentino's films usually included either a dressing or an undressing scene so that his votaries might become temporary voyeurs and obtain a glimpse of their love god's bared anatomy. 
In blood and sand, the camera coyly lingered on the parts of Valentino which extended from a screen while he disrobed. And as he is getting done up, his feet get a little extra TLC. Some of the men joke he has gotten soft. Gallardo, your feet did not need such care when you fought as a lad, they tell him. Already in his traditional suit of light, he heads out to speak to the crowd outside his room. As he goes out, he sees a funeral procession passing. He is freaked again as another bad omen will sure as another bad omen passes before him. Madre de Dios, a funeral procession. It is a second ill omen. Something will surely happen today, he exclaims. With the help of his entourage, he gets himself together before heading out to the carriage which will take him to the arena. As he goes, he bids adieu to the huge throng of fans. An interesting note from Anthony's slide came at this scene and answered a question I had during my viewings. Not all of this dressing scene existed. I had noticed that some of the inner titles were a little more recent looking, and that is because some segments of this bit did not exist until recently. Another reason you gotta love these lost film discovery stories. Next, we get a title card telling us on the way to the bullfight. I only bring up this because of the art on the title card. One of the coolest things about this flick is that they went above and beyond production-wise. The filmmakers could have been content to just put out normal intertitles and nobody would have said anything, but they did more. Many of the cards have awesome artwork accompanying the text, and this one is super freaking cool with the Grim Reaper floating above Juan as he heads to the fight. I will have a pic of this posted on our various socials if you want to check it out. After the arena, at the arena, everyone is arriving. Juan down below and the spectators in the stands. In a fancy sweet box will be a few folks of particular interest to us and the story. First is the president of the National Association of Sport. Also, we meet the Marquis de Moraima, breeder of the finest bulls in Spain, played by George Periolat. With him is his niece, Dona Sol. This seductress is played by Nita Naldi. If that name sounds familiar, we did a deep dive into her life in our Cobra episode from Season 1. As a quick refresher, Nita Naldi was 28 years old by the time she stepped onto the set of Blood and Sand. She was a veteran of double-digit films by 1922, including her first big role opposite John Barrymore in the 1920 release Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. She would have a short but incredibly busy film career. Despite not making any talkies, she did get some stage work in over the last 20 or so years of her life. Naldi would pass away due to a heart attack in a New York City hotel on February 17, 1961. Like I mentioned, this is just a taste of the famous vamp's life, but for a more in-depth look at Nita Naldi, might I recommend our third episode where we deep dove into the Cobra. Like many of the folks in attendance, she has her eyes on little Juanito as he prepares to work his magic. While he prepares his way, Carmen does the same. She is in the chapel praying for her husband's safety. Back on the arena sand, Juan dedicates the bull he is about to kill to the president's honor. He then casts his gaze upon Doña Sol, and he is instantly mesmerized. Doña Sol can't get enough herself. Here we get some footage, a mix of stock and new stuff that together implies Juan is fighting a bull. According to Emily Later in her book Dark Lover, there was some real movie magic going on to bring these moments to life. She writes... Film editor Dorothy Artsner spliced in existing stock footage of real bullfights and matched close-ups of Valentino to the stock long shots, sparing both Valentino's hide and the famous player's Lasky checkbook. 
After another win, Juan parades around, soaking up the adulation of the crowd. Doña Sol throws something to him. The two share a moment from the distance. Outside the arena, Juan opens the gift he was thrown by Doña Sol. It is a ring in the form of a serpent. He puts it on. Just then, Juan is introduced to the great breeder of bulls and his niece. She tells him how thrilled she was to this performance. He tries to give back the ring. She tells him it once belonged to an Egyptian queen who gave it to a Roman conqueror for his bravery. She wants it to be her tribute to his bravery now. She tells her uncle how Gallardo interests her. He reminds me of the old Spanish conquerors who laughed at death, she explains. She demands to see him upon his return to Seville. Juan is told he should be honored at her interest in him. And I didn't mention this earlier, but it should be put out there. Doña Sol is always dressed in black as opposed to the innocence of white Carmen's clothes throughout the film. That cannot abode well. In the December 1st, 1922 issue of Picture Play magazine, Malcolm H. Ottinger wrote an article about the film's resident vamp. It was entitled An Optical Illusion, and he describes Nita Daldi thusly. No man would go on record unfavorably in the case of Nita Naldi. She is too rare an occurrence. So long as she retains her oriental glamour, her wicked eyes, her devastating smile, she will fare well at the hands of a mere man. But what the women think about her probably concerns her, not at all. As an afterthought, Juan tells someone to send the usual telegram to Carmen that he is done and safe. When Gallardo returns home after his season, the education of his young nephews claimed his attention. We see a high-spirited Juan playing. Carmen loves this playful nature of Juan. She tells him it is great for him to be home. She exists as his manager enters and delivers a letter. It reads, It is no secret that you have been in Seville for a week. What kind of Torreira do you represent? Is he more afraid of a woman than the wild beasts of the arena that he has not the courtesy to accept the lady's invitation? Signed, Doña Sol. As he reads, he looks at the ring. He tells his manager that it ain't happening. He warns, the manager warns Juan not to not comply as an insult. The manager convinces him to give it a go. They meet in her opulent home. He shakes her hand, though she wanted it kissed. Juan is clearly uncomfortable with this, uncomfortable with this encounter. She offers the two men some fancy cigarettes. She is sultry as all get out, trying to woo the matador. Men were Donya's soul's hobby. A bullfighter was a new experience, we are told. Soon the trio are having drinks. Juan wants to leave, but Donya Sol demands he stay for dinner. Just the two of them. Juan is not happy and grows anxious. We take leave of those two and catch back up with our philosopher, Don Joselito. He is writing in his giant tome. What is he writing, you ask? Woman was created for the happiness of man, but instead she destroyed the tranquility of the world. Back with our two illicit lovebirds, dinner is over and Doña Sol seductively plays the harp for Juan. He moves ever closer as if to kiss her, but he stops. She asks what he was just thinking and he tells her his thoughts were only of her beauty. With things taking a turn for the sexy, Juan pulls himself together and heads out. Before he gets to the door, though, she leaves him with a rose and a compliment about his muscles. This leads to a hug, an embrace, and a kiss. Juan tries to fight it, but he eventually gives in. Nothing like forbidden love to ratchet up the tension, right? 
While these two are locked in each other's arms, let's hear Nidinaldi's view of the physicality of Valentino's on-screen embrace. Naldi would say, Rudy was a funny guy. Whenever I did a close-up with him, he liked to fill me up. He'd rub my breasts like crazy and chew at my ear. But that's as far as it ever went. Nothing off camera. Fred Niblo, our director in Blood and Sand, caught him at it once and gave him hell. He asked Rudy how he expected our love scenes to get by the censors with him giving me the feel. Rudy apologized and said that the bright lights behind the camera made it difficult for him to see me, so he just had to grope around until he found me. Now while these two were making out, poor, poor sweet Carmen is at home, sad and alone. To make things worse, she reads this newspaper story. It reads, The beautiful Danya Sol returned to Seville last week. It is rumored that she no longer wears the famous ring which once belonged to Cleopatra, and that it now adorns the hand of a famous matador. Time has passed, and we see all is not well with Juan Gallardo. His gang has noticed how much he has changed since that first meeting with Doña Sol. How that woman has changed you. I am not superstitious, but on that day you first met her, there was nothing but signs of ill omen, they remind him. We see the change ourselves. Juan is slouched at the table. He looks almost mean. There is a battle raging inside him. Santa Maria, you do not understand. It is torture to love two women. There is no one like Carmen, but the other woman. It is different, he explains. El Nacional replies, Impure love is like a flame. When it burns out, there is nothing left but the blackened embers of disgust and regret. Juan admits he needs help to stop this mad fascination. El Nacional offers a trip to Rinconada for a few days, you know, to get away for a bit. Before he can get out of town, though, Doña Sol invites him to a party she is throwing. She is showing him off to all her friends. The philosopher continues to add to his book. This time he writes, Passion is a game invented by the devil, at which only two can play. Not a Hallmark greeting card type of guy Don Joselito is. After the party is over and the guests are gone, Juan tells Doña Sol that they had better not see each other again. She tries to get touchy with Juan, but he wants none of it. In fact, he tells her he is going to Rinconada for a few days to forget about her. She counters, saying, Gallardo, you cannot forget me. Take me with you. And to let us know she has some wild peccadilloes, Doña Sol continues, Someday you will beat me with those strong hands. I should like to know what it feels like. She wraps herself up in his arms. You love me, Juan. You know you love me, she tells him. That was too much. Juan throws her to the ground. A flower vase crashes. He raises his hand to strike her. Snake, one moment I love you, the other I hate you, serpent from hell. He rushes out. She lies on the floor laughing, incredibly happy at what she has done to Juan. Valentino was super invested in the making of this picture, so much so that according to Emily Leiter, Rudy would insist on shooting two versions of the scenes showing him in close-up, one in which he speaks in English and the other in which he speaks his lines in Spanish, for the benefit of the lip readers and Spanish-speaking audiences. It was time for Juan's little trip and the sun was setting in a flaming glow when Gallardo reached Rinconada. Juan is looking incredibly dapper and enjoying a smoke when they come across a broken-down car. Who should be inside? None other than Doña Sol. I was on my way to my uncle's estate. How strange my car should have broken down here, she explains. Seems fishy to me and Juan. Being the gentleman that he is, he helps her out, but without smiling. Surely, Gallardo, you will invite me to dinner while my car is being repaired, she implores. 
He begrudgingly goes along, and the two drive off to the little town and head to the hotel-slash-restaurant. Nanya Sol tries to go into his room, but he tells her that room is for his wife. Really, she says, if my car is not repaired in time, I may be forced to spend the night here. And with that, she lets herself in. Juan does nothing to stop her. In that Malcolm Ottinger article we mentioned earlier, we get a trip to the actor's studio from Nita Naldi herself. The vamp explains, I don't see how I get by in pictures. I have to act by number. At three, I lift my shoulder. At five, I curl my lip. Fred Niblo almost went crazy directing me. Back home in the film, Juan's family is hanging out. Mother, sister, brother-in-law, and Carmen. They talk about how strange it is that Donya Sol is visiting near Rinconada at the same time as Juan. Carmen is heartbroken as they talk of such things. A man's home is the last place to hear of his indiscretions, we are told. The next morning, breakfast in Rinconada was of unusual interest. Plumitas the bandit had arrived. This got everyone in a tizzy. Oh, and by the way, Donya Sol and Juan did sleep in different rooms, in case you were curious. Whilst this is going on, Carmen and her and, and Juan's mother are on their way to Rinconada. While we are mentioning this little getaway town, let's turn to Anthony's slide for its shooting info. Slide explains, Shooting on blood and sand began in March of 1922. Exterior scenes, such as this one of Rinconada, together with the more important scenes of the bullfight arena, were shot at the Lasky Ranch located in the San Fernando Valley, adjacent to what is now Warner Brothers. Oddly enough, this land would eventually become Forest Hills Cemetery. Back to the delightful breakfast banter, we have Donya Sol getting us started by inquiring as to how many men Plumitas has killed. Plumitas starts counting, making everyone in the restaurant nervous, which I found funny. I cannot remember, he tells her. Perhaps as many men as Gallardo has killed bulls, he adds. Juan is super down by this whole Donya Sol situation. He is totally out of sorts and Plumitas isn't helping, any, helping matters at all. Senor Juan, the bandit says, you and I are much alike. We both live by killing. Only you get the plaudits of the world while I oft times go hungry. Plumita steps over to Juan and continues, We follow the only course open to a poor man to get money, by facing death. If God deserts us, you will be carried out of the arena feet foremost, and I will be shot down like a dog. How very prescient of our chatty bandit. This really freaks out Juanito. The group at the table disperses as Plumitas readies to leave. He gives a quick word to Juan before bidding adieu to Donya Sol, who gives him a rose in tribute to his bravery. The bandit takes his leave. Only Juan and Donya Sol remain. Your bandit friend is more agreeable than you, Gallardo. I would love to follow him, she says. This is where we see, this is where we get a little look into her evil machinations. She follows with, I could follow him if I wished, because there was nothing the matter with my car last evening, my Toreador. Juan is shocked as she laughs in his face. At the same time, Carmen and his mother arrived and entered the building. They see the two. Carmen has one hell of a stare down as Juan backs off, too broken to even get involved. To prove her complete jerkishness, Doña Sol tosses her purse on the floor and orders Juan to pick it up, all to show her control over Carmen's hubby. He picks it up and a heartbroken Carmen walks off. Doña Sol laughs as she leaves, gets in her fancy car, and drives away. With the temptress gone, Juan's mother yells at him. She says, I wish I could take a broomstick 
to you just as I used to. Juan sheepishly walks over to Carmen. No explanation I can make will suffice. Forgive me, he pleads. Sweet and innocent Carmen continues to look away as Juan takes her hand and pleads for her love. His words seem to not have any effect on his beloved. He leaves her and heads to his room. Carmen started to follow only to be met by a returning Juan. Now he is all dressed up knowing he has lost his love. The last bullfight of the season is tomorrow, he tells her. One can never tell. Won't you say goodbye? He holds out his hand to her. She looks away as the sullen matador walks out. What havoc a year had wrought. Scorned by the woman who had destroyed his wife's faith, the Toreador's domestic problem and reckless dissipation were the gossip of Spain, we are told. We see this as Juan is hanging out with his buddies, sad and distracted. He tells them he has received a letter from Carmen asking him to give up the arena. His friends are not very good friends and encourage him to continue the fights. He is too young to give up the fame and fortune his prowess has so far afforded him. At this point, Juan is a mess, drunk and not sleeping, only thinking of his messed up personal life. He is in no shape to risk life and limb, but he has to as the fickle world that loved him would only call him a failure if he were to quit. We are at the arena. It is packed with thousands of screaming fans. Among them is a bored Donya Soul. Carmen soon arrives as well. She is too scared to enter the arena. She knows he is in danger and must pray for him, which she does as Juan takes to the sand. With one last glance at Donya Soul, he heads out. On his way out, he also spots Plumitas. This bull is for you, comrade, he tells the bandit. The crowd goes wild as Juan begins. His fellow Toreadors see there is trouble brewing. Damn that woman. I have never seen Juan so reckless, they say. Robert Sherwood, in his review for Blood and Sand for Life magazine, would write, There are a number of strikingly effective bullfight scenes in Blood and Sand. Although it is quite evident that the expensive Signor Valentino is absent from the more strenuous episodes, he is shown making passes at a bull, which is only half in the picture. As Will Rogers observes, we shall, never prob we shall probably never learn the identity of the hero who held the bull's tail. As the bullfight is going down, police spot, police spot Plumitas in the crowd. He tries to make a run for it, but is shot dead. The gunfire momentarily catches Juan's attention, distracting him from the bull. A strange terror seized Juan. His right arm seemed to lack its daring. His legs seemed to lose their steadiness, we're told. Juan makes a move to the bull only to get gored and thrown through the air, blood spilled all over the sand. The dying Juan is taken to the church area where Carmen was praying. Back in her suite, Doña Sol is told Gallardo is dying. She could care less. On with the show, she acts. Meanwhile, Carmen is holding her Juan. They say their last words to each other before Juan takes off the serpent ring and throws it to the floor, relieving, relieving himself of that last bit of control Doña Sol held over him. Carmen kisses him as he dies, a tear dropping from his eye. Mi querida, forgive, I, I only love you, he says with his last breath. Outside, Don Joselito talks about the sadness of both Toreador and Beast dying this day. As the crowd in the arena still goes crazy, Don Joselito remarks, But out there is the real beast, the beast with 10,000 heads, and that is the end of Blood and Sand. Now, with the movie wrapped up, I have to say, I loved it. This is a movie I have seen many a time, and I've enjoyed it every single time I've seen it. 
It's a timeless tale that never gets old. For my personal taste, it is Valentino at his most Valentino. I, I really couldn't ask for more. Though he did have a few times where you could dip a little too much into the melodramatic from time to time, I loved his performances here. The emotions, the reactions he could get with just a look or a flourish of his body are really remarkable. And he embodies the innocence and the sadness of the picture. And even when you look at this picture in regards to his real-life story, the themes and the plot points really hit a little bit harder when you know Rudolph Valentino's life story and you see how it parallels that of Juan Gallardo. The other main talking point on the acting front for this movie is Nita Naldi. She is amazing in this role. Much like her co-star Valentino, she elicited so many different emotions from a look or a subtle movement. Her vamp dial is turned up to 11, and I am there for it every single time. Now, we're going to look back at Malcolm Ottinger and his article, where he gives a pretty amazing account of that star quality of Nita Naldi, while tossing in a bit of the supernatural. Ottinger writes, if there was such a thing as reincarnation, it would be a simple matter to place Nita Naldi in a former world. She wrecked empires and held czars impotent before her smile. She swayed whole kingdoms with her frown and bathed in flaming fountains. She crooked her finger and rajas flocked to her. She ruled all men with a drooping eye and gained the hatred and jealousy of all women. Now, on the negative side, I wasn't much for Fred Niblo's direction. His work on the film is perfectly adequate, and that's all about all I can say. He was certainly a director on this. The story was so good that I would have loved to have seen it in someone else's hands. I wish the visual storytelling was on par with the acting. Some directors are incredibly imaginative with strong visions and strong ideas, all in service to an amazing cinematic experience. Fred Niblo is a dude who knew the rules and needs of the studio, and gave them what they asked for, an adequate picture. Speaking of the visuals, another of my downsides of this movie is the use of stock footage. Not as much that they use stock footage, but the fact that the stock footage was of such poor quality. It's really bad in comparison to the film footage. I feel that this could have been, and should have been, not an issue in making such a big time feature with one of the studio's biggest stars. Credit must be given again to Dorothy Arzner for getting the best version of the arena events and bullfighting as possible. Despite everything, it's a great movie. It's an all-timer and worthy of Rudolph Valentino. Some silence in movies in general are a single view experience. Blood and Sand, though, I can't get enough. While the story and characters can be a bit convoluted at times, the performances really lift it up. Now that's enough of my review ramblings, but let's turn to some pros and see what they thought about the artistic merits of this silent classic. The first writer we turn to will be Robert Sherwood, who has had an increased role over the last few episodes of the Golden Silent Films podcast. His review of Blood and Sand first appeared in the 9-14-22 edition of Life magazine. Sherwood writes, while vacationing in Hollywood last spring, I was privileged to meet Fred Niblo, who was then directing Blood and Sand. This picture is so essentially Spanish, Mr. Niblo told me, that I want everyone in the theaters where it is shown to eat garlic during the performance. Sherwood continues, 
When I saw Blood and Sand, I was relieved to find that the great majority of the audience had not taken Mr. Niblo at his word. Fortunately, they didn't have to, for he has spread the atmosphere so thickly on the screen that his photoplay needs no artificial stimulation from out front. He has made Spain more Spanish than it has ever been before. And herein lies the only criticism that may legitimately be made of Blood and Sand. It is so extremely atmospheric that much of the drama is lost. Mr. Niblo has seen fit to focus his lens on the backgrounds so that the element of plot, as embodied in the principal members of the cast, is blurred and indistinct. Blood and Sand, as Ibanez wrote it, was a dull book, Sherwood writes. But that is no reason why it should be a dull movie. Somewhere beneath the sea of words in the novel lurk depths of considerable profundity. Mr. Niblo and June Mathis, who adapted the story, have plumbed some of these depths and have brought up the ideas that they contained. Rudolph Valentino, whose fan letters have diminished materiously since his recent nuptials, is magnificent as Juan Gallardo, the matador. No one can dispute the fact that he is remarkable, that he is a remarkable actor, possessed of a real grace, a great deal of pictorial attraction, and genuine ability. His costumes are excellent. But it wasn't a completely magical experience for Sherwood, however. He explains, Nidinaldi, who portrays the ruthless Donya soul, is not so good. Where subtlety and finesse are highly desirable, she employs sledgehammer methods of seduction. Lila Lee, as the neglected wife, is extremely pretty, and Walter Long contributes a characteristically competent performance as Plumitas the bandit. The release of this picture was the talk of the country. It was a wild opening day in Los Angeles, and so wild that it even made the headlines in Montana's Great Falls Tribune. If you were reading the August 18th issue, you would have read, The first showing took the California city by storm. There was a line of people more than a block long from the entrance of the Rialto Theater from the time it opened in the morning at 11 o'clock until 10 o'clock at night. That tells you a little about the excitement and quality of this film. The August 11, 1922 edition of Trade Paper Variety had some choice comments about the bullfighting picture. The reviews read, The story has many picturesque elements, but it is episodic and scattered. It seems to have no pattern. It starts with the theme of a humble shoemaker raised to eminence as a national hero of the bullring and an idol of the people. The production is confusing. The characters sometimes do not dominate the scenes because of the over-elaboration of the settings. The wedding scene is a confused jumble of restless minor people. Always the principal people are befrogged by their surroundings, so you can't see the trees for the forest. And there is more confusion in the multiplicity of characters, of whom there are 16 listed in the cast. On the positive side of things, Picture Play Magazine wrote, Blood and Sand is a faithful transcription of Ibanez's colorful story of the public's relentless clamor for thrills. As the swaggering hero of the bullring, Valentino proves himself a fine actor and Nidinaldi leaves no vamping undone. This was definitely a mixed bag of reviews, with some calls on the harsher side of the ledger, I would say. So, let's talk a little bit about the film's legacy. In an interview with Picture Play magazine, Lila Lee summed up the experience filming Blood and Sand thusly. She would say, Blood and Sand was a real inspiration. Imagine Fred Niblo, Valentino, and June Mathis working on the same picture. Valentino isn't a bit mean about wanting the star part. I like Miss Naldi, and she encouraged me a lot. 
It's all wrong, isn't it, when two women in the same cast like each other? Despite the embarrassment and weirdness surrounding Valentino's bigamy scandal, Blood and Sand still ended up being an amazing success. Critics, despite what I read a moment ago, generally loved it and audiences flocked to the theaters. In the accounting books, Blood and Sand was one of the four top grossing movies in 22, breaking attendance records and grossing $37,400 at the Rivoli Theater alone. As we have mentioned at the outset of this episode, Valentino considered this one of his best films. According to Anthony Slide, when the film opened in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in September of 1922, Blood and Sand did very well in its first week. But word of mouth seems to have gotten around. In the second week, the film was playing to half-empty houses. The same issue would occur in San Francisco, amongst other cities. There were definitely dips during its run, but it still killed it financially. Speaking of those opening night audiences in New York's Rivoli Theater, the August 11th, 1922 edition of Variety gives us a look at that opening night crowd. The article reads, The attendance made it look like an extraordinary winner, but the behavior of the crowd in the theater was peculiar. Along toward the middle of the screening, they showed a disposition to scoff at the play. Some of the serious scenes, particularly those vamping episodes involving Juan the Bullfighter and Doña Sol, the vampire widow, touched their sense of humor. Another fascinating bit of info presented by Anthony Slide pertains to the regional fashion sense of this film and its impact on ladies' fashion in the United States. Slide explains, The Spanish influence was felt in women's attire and shawls, colorful skirts, and bandanas becoming popular. Fashion sense wasn't the only thing getting a bump in the aftermath of blood and sand. Nita Naldi would also see a career boost that upped her star quality and led to a contract with Paramount. And as we've mentioned before, this would also lead to more roles opposite Rudolph Valentino. Blood and Sand as a narrative concept would prove incredibly successful to studios throughout the years. The bullfighting epic would be made twi twice more. The first was a 1941 version directed by Ruben Mamoulian with stars Tyrone Power, Linda Darnell, and Rita Hayworth lighting up the screen. A fun little side fact about this version, Alan Nazimova, whose life story and career intersects a number of times and ways with that of Rudolph Valentino, played Juan's mother. That's really cool. There's also a 1989 Spanish remake directed by Javier Elorieta and starring Chris Rydell, Sharon Stone, and Anna Torrent. Stan Laurel would even take a comedic look at adapting this fi the film, as a, but as a parody instead. Mud and Sand was released shortly after Blood and Sand on November 13, 1922. But wait! There is more, there is more. For all the drinkers out there, this film crossed over into the cocktail realms as well. Though the true origins of this drink are shrouded in mystery, the recipe is first known to have appeared in the 1930s Savoy cocktail book. The blood and sand is usually served in a coupe glass, also known as a champagne coupe. Its main ingredients include blood orange juice, sweet vermouth, cherry hearing liqueur, and scotch. To prepare the cocktail, pour and shake all ingredients into a shaker, then double strain the mix in a coupe glass and garnish with a slice of blood orange. There are a lot of cool videos on YouTube with great how-tos about the blood and sand drink. With a few ingredients and a video tutorial, you'll soon be on your way to drinking like a movie star. Speaking of stars, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic love interests on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, the celebrity spectacle converge, and where are they now? Your guide to paying your respects to the stars that have entertained us so much.
The theme of heartbreak and tumult would follow Lila Lee through to the end of her life. After an abusive second marriage and divorce, Lee began a relationship with car salesman Reed Russell in 1935. In 1936, Lee was living in California with her son Jimmy, novelist Governor Morris, and his wife Ruth. Lee became engaged to Russell and planned to marry him once he obtained a divorce. On September 25, 1936, Russell's dead body was discovered outside on a hammock by Jimmy, by little Jimmy Kirkwood Jr. And that would start a scandal that would ultimately end Lee's career. This is a wild and relatively convoluted scandal that definitely deserves its own episode and time to fully break down, but suffice it to say that after the Reed Russell scandal in 1936, Lila Lee's career was completely over for the most part. She would not act in another film until 1967's Cotton Pickin' Chicken Pickers, which would prove to be her final film. Before that, though, she then moved to Sar Saranac Lake, New York, for treatment at the Will Rogers Memorial Hospital. Despite her various ailments and health scares, Lila Lee was able to get the most out of her stays in Saranac Lake. She could be very upbeat and positive for good, long stretches of time. In an article for the June 3, 1946 edition of the Adirondack Daily Enterprise, written by Charles L. Wright, we can see this positive outlook. Wright writes, Miss Lee said that she really enjoys her stay here, although when Dr. J.N. Hayes, her physician, calls, she tries to find out when she can go back to New York. The actress spoke very highly of the people in Saranac Lake. She mentioned especially Miss Dorothy Hayes, assistant librarian who watches out for her reading. A big, huge, golden, silent films podcast shout out to Miss Dorothy Hayes, wherever you are, and all of the librarians out there keeping the stars well-read and the podcasts well-researched. Since the name of Will Rogers Memorial Hospital has been thrown around a bit, let's take a quick detour into the story behind this medical facility to the stars. The Will Rogers Memorial Hospital was a tuberculosis sanatorium located at the aforementioned Saranac Lake in Essex County, New York. It was built in 1928 by the National Vaudeville Artists Association. It would be renamed after Will Rogers in 1936, one year after the star's death in a plane crash. The facility would provide unconventional tuberculosis treatments to entertainment industry patients from 1936 until 1975. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1983. As we are talking a bit about Will Rogers, an undated obit from the Adirondack Daily Enterprise, we learn about Lila Lee's connection to the namesake of the tuberculosis sanatorium she called home for a fair period of time. Since it was an obituary, it had to have been published on or around November 13, 1973, the death date of Lila Lee. The article reads, Miss Lee also had been a patient at Will Rogers Hospital in 1961. At the time, she recalled playing with Will Rogers in one glorious day. She was the heroine and Will, she said, was a shy and prissy professor, unable to express his love until, by accident, he took a drug that transformed him into a lock, a lochinvar come out of the West. You can imagine the comedy that resulted. One Glorious Day was released in 1922 and starred Will Rogers, Lila Lee, and Helen Hale Sr., and was directed by James Cruz. Looking into this unfortunately lost film, it sounds amazing. It has crazy star power in front of and behind the camera, and the story seems like a wild ride. Like many films of the time, it is a huge bummer it is gone. Lee gave the entertainment industry another go with uneventful appearances in stage plays in the 40s and roles in early television shows in the 50s. For her contribution as an actress in motion picture, she was awarded a star 
on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 1716 Vine Street. It was dedicated on February 8, 1960. Turning back to Sean Egan, we get a look at Lila Lee's final stretch of life. Egan writes, On November 13, 1973, Lila Lee died at Saranac Lake, age 68. She had been in hospital since June 25th with progressive shortness of breath and coughing. She suffered while there what seemed to be her fourth major stroke of recent years. The medical records show that when her son visited, her mood brightened. But by October 22nd, she was refusing food and telling doctors she wanted to die. Though her health turned around sufficiently for her condition to be described as good, she abruptly developed congestive heart failure and new circulatory damage to the brain, became stuporous and comatose, and died quietly at 12.30 p.m. on the seventh post-operative day following surgical gastrostomy for feeding. She is buried in Brookdale Cemetery in Elyria, Ohio. Now, this is a very special edition of Where Are They Now? It is so special because the final resting place of Lila Lee is the first we, as a show, were able to visit live and in person. As I was researching this episode, I was flabbergasted to learn that Lila Lee was buried in Elyria, Ohio, which is just a couple hours away from the global headquarters of the Golden Silent Films podcast here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was an awesome but heart-wrenching experience to see her gravesite and pay my respects to an actress in person. So many of the people we cover are buried in California or New York or other far-flung locales. It was super cool to have such a big star's final resting place be so close. I like to think she was finally enjoying the peace and positivity she lacked while she was alive. Elyria is a small town with lots of small-town charm. The cemetery itself, Brookdale, was a well-kept local cemetery. Lots of cemeteries I've been to are big tourist attractions where the office has maps and lists of notable burials. This was exactly the opposite. This was a true cemetery exploration adventure. All I knew going in was that she was buried in Section F and one picture of the headstone plaque. Unfortunately, the picture was taken in spring with greenery and sunlight in full effect. Our trip came on a rainy, dreary January afternoon. Once Section F was found, the real work began. That designated area was incredibly big, and lots of walking and grave marker reading failed to lead to the actress's grave. Like a treasure hunting adventure, I held up the picture on my cell phone and moved around until the background closely resembled the picture. Then I knew I was close. Not long after, there it was. She was found. It was a wild feeling being so close to someone I had just been reading so much about. I paid my respects, said a few kind words, and was soon back on the road. This incredible experience is one we will definitely have to do again once the weather is more cooperative. I had hoped to explore more and see if more members of her family were interred there, but the weather was not conducive to exploration. I love it that such a small town has such a historical inhabitant. I hope her legacy is something this town can, and film lovers in general, can get behind. And we would love to be the part, be part of that in some way. For now, though, if you are able to get to Elyria, Ohio, do stop at Brookdale Cemetery and pay your respects to Lila Lee, legend of the silver screen. If you can't make it, photos of this adventure were taken and will be all over our social media spots. So, with this episode winding down, we want to thank you for returning to the arena with us. Though we here at the Golden Silent Films podcast don't especially like the act of bullfighting, there is something about this event and spectacle that always pulls us in. 
It definitely makes for a fascinating backdrop for a film, regardless of the moral and humane issues surrounding it. Did you enjoy this Spanish melodrama? What are some of your favorite cinematic man versus beast battles? What are some of your favorite book-to-movie adaptations of the silent era? Have you ever taken a road trip for cemetery exploration purposes? Let us know all of that and more at the various social media hangouts of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you think about this episode. What silent-related movies, past or present, do you want us to dive into next? Our world of silence is constantly expanding, and we need your input to plan out our future views as we continue through Season 3 of the Golden Silent Films podcast. You can do all of that at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence One on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. It helps us out a lot here, and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We super, super appreciate all of your incredible support, and seeing how much all of you folks out there are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for all of you. And this episode could surely be considered bigger. All that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for sticking with us this whole show, and for all of your fine listening. And don't forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad. So if you're still here, God bless you for sticking through this whole episode. But when we do these usual end credit sections, I usually only end with one quote or story or quip or outtake at the end of the episode. But there were two really good ones I felt fit this episode perfectly, but there wasn't any real smooth way to incorporate them into the overall episode. So I figured we'd do it awkwardly here in our celebrated and applauded end credit scene. The following are two very different perspectives on Valentino and his impact on fans and directors alike. Agnes Smith in the August 1922 edition of Picture Play magazine writes, The perfect Valentino fan ended up the chorus. I'd leave my husband for him, she sighed, but I am afraid it would only annoy him. Most screen actors like to be he-men. Mr. Van Valentino is a wonderful relief. He reminds me of all the men I didn't marry, of all the boys who didn't ask me to college dances, of all the heroes that I thought were dead. He isn't the self-satisfied businessman. He isn't the perfect American. No good American would dare be half so charming. No good American would dare to have such fascinating eyes. He doesn't really flirt. I think he is quite sincere. And doesn't he make the regulation movie king look foolish? And so, and let's close out this episode with a quote from Blood and Sand director Fred Niblo. Niblo would say, Valentino is one of the most sensitive, responsive actors with whom it has been my good fortune to work. He has a remarkable instinct for acting, which makes his characterization of Gallardo, the bullfighter, stand out as the best work he has ever done. <laughs>